The interesting thing, if you compare that middle set of bars, which is six month post training with the quote unquote, they called them elite bodybuilders with seven years of training, their fibers are the same size. Well, how is it that the elite bodybuilders have arms that are, let's see, it's three and a half inches bigger hmm. if their fibers are the same size? Well, they probably have more fibers. What do we want to start with? Yeah. Do we want to start with uh, the, the, the big thing that you had been doing a bunch of research on today? The, the question about uh, genetic growing muscle, that question? Yeah, yeah, we can. I, I didn't have to do a bunch of research. I just found well, some things I knew about. You did a lot more than me. Okay, let me put it that way. <laughs> okay. All, right. All right. This is from Brian. Uh, Brian is uh, one of our longtime listeners. I wanted to give him a shout out as well because he always uh, comments with thoughtful things, and uh, which, of course, comments themselves, so they help to boost the show up. So I appreciate his support with all of our shows, and uh, I appreciate that he's getting something out of them. But he said, question for the next episode. Over the years, I have seen multiple examples of absolute freaks who have that one muscle group that just does not respond like the rest. Marcus's, Marcus rules triceps, Ronnie's calves, and so on. These guys are the best of the best. But when it comes to growing muscles and uh, with the best genetics in the world, um, what is it about those weak muscle groups that just will not grow despite being exposed to all the training and supplements in the world. Thanks. Okay, so this 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 is a like a potentially there's so many different tangents we can go on with this. I think with those two examples, I have I've got the first thing that comes to comes to mind. You don't have to go into any deep muscle biology in order to piece this together. I have the suspicion that maybe Ronnie's calves were better. And when he and when he was when he was younger, you may be able to find pictures, and really? they started to degrade. Yeah, they weren't huh. always like weak. He had he had good calves, but I think he may have torn them. Like I've torn mine. I've torn my right one. There's no there's no medial gastroc there. Yeah. It's yeah. gone. Yeah, because it I, I tore it. I never felt any pain. It just felt this little bit of a snap, and over time it just degenerated. Um, people sometimes get bad shots. And they get nerve damage because of that. Um, I know of multiple examples of that. Um, if you look at Dennis Wolf's calves, they sort of went downhill over time. And there's yeah. been a couple people. Yeah. So it may not be simply what, what he's kind of asking about. is like, why didn't his calves grow um, so well? It's that maybe they weren't that bad. And when you saw them at the end, when everything else was fully maxed out, the calves had a different history of being torn or being mm. maybe maybe did some shots in there and had an issue with it. The same thing makes me wonder about Marcus. You never know. Um, his biceps are still huge. Yeah, like if you can like he he's very active in the German bodybuilding scene. He does like videos all the time. It's funny because there's a lot of guys. You know, you know this phenomenon. Well, when someone wants to make themselves sort of a little more famous and get more views, they they in, invo invoke the name of someone who's much more famous than they are. So they sure. take a pot shot at him or whatever. Sure. So people take pot shots at Marcus all the time. There's all these back and forth videos. They're in the German language, but of like, you know, Mark is saying something and this person saying something back and forth to one another. It's just, it's ridiculous. 
but his biceps. So he's, he trained. He just trained with um, Urs Kalasensi, I think is how you say his last name. The, uh, the German guy. He's originally from Poland. Who was? Was he? I think he was fourth in Olympia. Okay. In in the classic physique, he's he's the best German bodybuilder out there now. It, um, potentially, placing wise, recently he's he maybe even better than Roman Fritt because he's just placed better than Roman has okay. in his category. We'll see how Roman does. Roman's Roman's coming your way, I think. I, I, I don't I think it's okay. I, I was gonna say I didn't think it was a secret or anything. Pro. Yeah. No, no, no. He's made that known now. Yeah, I can't go to the Tampa. I don't think I can go to the Tampa Pro. Ah, uh, bummer. Bummer. Oh, that's right, because you're not in Tampa. You're nowhere near Tampa. No. I'm three hours away, and I've got my RV, but I Suki's got limited. She's got a cone on her head now. and He's looking good, surgery. though. So we'll see if he changes that. We'll see what his placings look like after this, after a couple of yeah, good shows. Yeah, you know? finally. Because yeah. he was putting down – so he does lots of his videos in – we're getting off topic now, but does yeah. lots of his videos in German, but lots of them in English as well. And he was I've putting down that. like eight or 9,000 calories in uh, – a day during With, an off season. And he stays so lean. I feel like he's a guy that needs to be able to force food like that. You know, That's, he had to, yeah, that he wasn't going to get any bigger unless he just, unless he went all in like that. And he did. Yeah. That's cool. So, and it's paid look, off, man. Cause he's looking incredible right now. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah. Anyway. So, um, back to Marcus, if, if, and I'm not saying that he did or he didn't, people accuse him of this naturally. If he was putting something in his biceps, that's a much easier muscle to shoot than the triceps for size. So, and if you run into an issue, if you're doing this on your own, let's say you're doing SEOs or doing local injections and you develop scar tissue, like you could, people, I know there are people shoot their biceps as much as anywhere else. They just like to put stuff there. Yeah. It's very easy. Yeah. Triceps is a little bit harder. Yeah. Try to put it, try to check in your triceps. And the, because of the difficulty in doing that, you may actually cause muscle damage. Mm. So, so that's one possibility. Like you've got the injection and muscle tear history potential of the person. Um, so also what, how a muscle grows over time is a function of its function of its loading history. That's kind of a fancy, fancy term for, how much does it get used during the day? Has it been trained? Has it not been trained? You, for instance, you're an example of just the opposite of this phenomenon in a certain way because your calves are friggin' world class mm. and they Thank outpace. You. Yeah, like no, your calves are ridiculous. Yeah, and yeah, then you've not, are. and you've you've trained them. They're super ridiculous. You trained them. We talked about this multiple times. You sent me that. I'll never forget. You sent me the video of just looking at your feet while you're doing side laterals and you're up on your tippy toes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you've got this loading history, whatever it is about the way that you learned to locomote as a kid. Yeah. Probably some of that is your biomechanics. Maybe there's something in your environment. Like maybe you like need to see up over tables or something like that when you're a kid. Who knows? Um, but that's the way, you know, you don't have much of a heel strike and you're, so you've got tons of loading on your plantar flexors. You had a loading history from the get-go early on of just loading the hell out of those calves. Yeah. And there's some some potential. I haven't, you know, people talk about when new muscle fibers would form or when muscles grow, but there are periods early on in development. We know this especially from the animals that you've got satellite cells that are particularly involved with potential to create more muscle fibers. So you may have been doing that as a kid or early on in a way that, that led to larger, I'd be interested to see how big your muscle fibers are hmm. versus, um, 
what you could kind of use it as an estimate of how many you have. You may have normal sized muscle fibers, but more of them, or not terribly large, but a lot of them. Yeah. So, so there's all that in the loading, the loading history that can play a role. So what the calves undergo, this is why people train calves differently compared to what um, the biceps undergo can be completely different. Biceps are, you know, you're not doing much with them. You know, if you're not, if you're just training and you're doing nothing else but like writing and maybe working at a keyboard, you've not got much going on there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what you do, if you look look at the loading history of when you're training during the day, and let's say you do, um, uh, I'll say you do 10 sets for a muscle group in a week, something like that. And each of those sets is a minute. You spend 10 minutes um, once a week. So add up the hours, seven times 24 versus 10 minutes. So like one sixth of an hour versus 148 hours or whatever that is. No, 188 hours in a, in a, how many hours in a week? 24 times seven. A lot. A lot. So it's a, it's a very small, yeah, someone's going to post it for us. Um, So the very small number amount of time is actually spent doing the training. And you see these, this phenomenon in the other animal models of hypertrophy, the compensatory hypertrophy, which you talked about. They take out one muscle group of the calves, um, take out the soleus, and watch the gastroc grow. Mm-hmm. It'll do that. Um, one thing you tend to see in, for instance, in older people is that the leg muscles will atrophy more so than the upper body over time compared to younger people. So. That's what you see in older people is they don't walk around as much. They don't, not as active. Their step counts go down as they age. But that, so you've got this loading that's going on in the legs that progressively changes and you lose size there. Whereas in the upper body, people do, you'll even see the way people, like they'll lean against things with their upper body. Like literally, mm-hmm. if, they're, if they're, they got a bad back or what have you, and most of Americans after the age of 40 have a bad back. So you've got this little change in the upper body loading history. You have much less loss of muscle mass, whereas you stop walking around so much. And squatting, you get bad knees. What do you don't do? You don't squat down. Yeah. You bend at your back, you know, and you're not you're not you're not doing anything that's close to what a stiff legged deadlift would be or a deep squat would be. You lose size there. Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of accommodation that can happen. People just don't move around in the same way. They don't get the same loading history that's going on all the time outside. You look at um, look at tennis players, and you know you think of a tennis you know player playing being you know like the way to big build a big arm, but tennis players have a bigger arm in the in their dominant arm than the other ones considerably. Yeah, it's fairly. Oh, it's I've seen that. Large. I remember seeing Roger yeah. Federer and, and and just seeing like. A, a huge discrepancy. In fact, I'll, I'll look post-production to see if I can find a picture that would demonstrate yeah. it. But his, his right arm, or I think it was his right arm, I believe he was right-handed, was muscular. And the other one almost looked atrophied by comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's those things. Uh, and then there's also like what does someone um, – who knows? I don't, if we look back at, the, at Marcus Rule – he used to do crazy heavy pressing. Maybe he he constantly used to go really wide on his presses. Okay, have you ever seen like he's got in in the um, uh, what's the name of the video in in his the main video that he had? Uh, I'm blanking on the name of it, but he's doing like Smith machine presses, 
and his hands, you can't see me because there's not room in the camp, but his hands are literally like almost as wide as they can be. His range of motion is very small. Yeah. He's got like five plates on the Smith machine. That's wild. Um, but it's crazy. Yeah. So he may have had really, and so that doesn't favor a good range of motion for the triceps at all. So if he did sure. a lot of his presses that way, he's not getting tricep loading that way. Some of that may have been because maybe he had chronic triceps tendonitis. Hmm. Some people tend to get tendonitis in the knees or in their in their elbows, yeah. either in the hamstrings or the patellar tendons, tendons on both sides of the joint. So that's going to limit direct training there. So there's 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 a lot of things that are involved or that could be possibly involved as to whether one muscle grows versus another. The thing that's interesting um, too is this whole story with satellite cells. So we've talked about this. Satellite cells are just outside the, the muscle cell membrane, and they're waiting. And we this seems to be important. I should have I should have gotten one of these figures. But if you look at what what happens in those who grow really well, who gain size really really well, versus those who are, are non-responders or just moderate in terms of the response, there's kind of three things that happen at least in terms of satellite cells. One. The people who respond really well in the muscles that they've tested have more satellite cells available in the first place, just mm. one with them. They also have an increase in the number of those satellite cells and in the, in the density of those satellite cells. So they, the, the satellite cells proliferate themselves and they're ready because when a muscle cell gets bigger, it needs more nuclei. The cell's so big, it has to have multiple nuclei. You can't just grow and grow and grow. So there's some mixed evidence here. Some of it depends on the muscles that are being sampled. But satellite cells are important, and the growth factors that turn on the satellite cell activity are released in larger amounts in those people. Hmm. So the interesting, you know, we can start comparing muscles. You generally see the muscles, like the muscles of the diaphragm, versus which is a different has a totally different loading history. Diaphragm's always going. Yeah, it's like your heart; it's constantly there. Yeah. Um, those the satellite cell activity there is different than what you'll see, for instance, in a calf muscle or a quad muscle sure. or a biceps or a triceps. So, and also, if you look at muscles that and here's satellite cells are so fucking cool. Look at muscles, at least in animals, that have like a lot of a type two fiber type, and you take those satellite cells out and you put them in culture, and you can get them to turn into regular muscle cells. Those will tend to become type two muscle cells. Okay. They just they're, so they're they're not completely undifferentiated. They don't have they can't just turn into whatever. They, they so they they pick up on the local environment or what that 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 person's genetic proclivity t- fiber type wise happens to be. They've done studies with this is really this is one of my favorites. I mentioned this before. I think they've taken endurance athletes and compared them with control people who are sedentary. And they take a little muscle sample and they pull out that and they take these satellite cells. So the satellite cells are just sitting there. They're not muscle. They don't contract. They produce no force. They do no exercise. They're just hanging out like saying, okay, see what's up. Like, tell me what I got to do. What's next? And I'll be ready to, to for whatever adaptation um, is impending. They take out those satellite cells from the trained individuals and, and develop those, let those develop, prod those into development with growth factors into functional muscle cells. It's in a culture dish, so it's not connected to anything. And then they look at the insulin sensitivity, which we know is improved by exercise, 
in those satellite cells that have never exercised and they have better insulin sensitivity hmm. compared to the control people who didn't ever who who weren't exercising so the okay. satellite cells are aware of, they're picking up on the metabolic demands or picking up on the the nature of the loading history of the relative of the muscles that are there and those and, and they also are aware of what fiber type they come from so um you've got the story of if someone's for instance born with lots of type one fibers in a muscle for whatever reason that may maybe is one that tends to be a little bit stagnant to growth it's a little it's a uh, it doesn't want to grow very well it's a weak muscle group you're going to have satellite cells in there that want to become type ones. Those don't grow very well. Hmm. So let's say you get 20% growth in the type ones and you get 30% growth in the type twos. If you've got a muscle that's mainly type ones, you're, you're stuck with those in terms of the growth you get there and the ty- and the satellite cells aren't going to help you out hmm. too much. So there's that. And let's start pulling up some of these figures because now it's, there's all sorts of cool shit here. Let's see which one is the best one to start with. Let's see. Which, which was the first one? Which one did you have there that came over to you first? Um, the first one is the one that says uh, 2006. And then the one... Yeah. That one? Let's pull that one up. Yeah, why not? Right. Why not? All right, so there's a lot, very little data here, but it's all over. The, it's somewhat, it's somewhat mixed. It's kind of, it's kind of interesting. So in that first, um, first bar, the bar graphs up top, that's from the study there, dance from some Italian researchers published in 2006. And what you see on the left is the difference in the cross-sectional area um, of the vastus lateralis in particular, and the quads. So the open bars are the control individuals, untrained, and the bodybuilders, with at least two years of training in this case, um, are the grayish, grayish bars. So their muscles are bigger. If you look to the right, you see the distribution of the myosin heavy chain. So that's basically how much, of what fibers do they have. In this study, if you look at that first set of bars there, which says MHC1, if people can see that. It's in the upper right. You've got a, you've got a, a scenario here where the bodybuilders tend to have more type 2 fibers, which would hmm. be a good thing because type 2 fibers tend to grow more. So that's interesting. That's, you know, that's fine. Um, that's one, one finding. If you look below at another study, um, in this case, you can just look at that rightmost column, um, MHC1, myosin heavy chain 1. And the numbers, the means there are for competitive bodybuilders and then just recreationally resistant strain and endurance rower and then the control. And what you see there, if you compare the competitive bodybuilders with any, any of the other groups really, but resistance strain, you see the, the strongest difference there. There's a tendency there. You can look at all the values. There's a tendency there for in this case, in this study with these people, um, when they sampled the triceps, not the quad, not the vastus lateralis, but the triceps brachii, so the arm muscle, the competitive bodybuilders tend to have more type 1 hmm. myosin. 
So the muscle, potentially, you compare these two studies that you sample is going to give you a different picture in terms of what's happening. And of course, your quads, like there's a guy, um, uh, I think goes, his name is like, goes Bulldog, something like this. I found him somewhere uh, on maybe Facebook or could have been YouTube. I follow him on Instagram now. He lives in Texas and I think he was born without legs. So he does everything with his upper body. I posted a kind of a motivational video from him the other day, um, a couple, three weeks ago, maybe. Hmm. And he walks around on his arms. He doesn't have any legs. Hmm. And he's like, I've got, he's, he's, he's got the state record by far for bench press. He could, he could bench almost 500 pounds. No kidding. Wow. But he has, he has, he has no legs. So he like, he, it puts him in a very low weight class, but uh-huh. he's friggin' jacked. He has, he has a, na- a national level of need, if not a pro level upper body wow. from a bodybuilding standpoint. He's, he's a beast and he's part of potentially part of why he's so big is because he's been using his upper body like that so so much yeah yeah you, yes but he started that way as a kid you know uh, that's yeah. if, I, if i remember the story correct is maybe he was very young or maybe he's just born without these legs i think maybe they had been amputated when he's very very young i can't recall exactly but so imagine if you had to do the same relative effort level and work with your arms yeah that you do with your legs during the day yeah. like you had, like you had to, like your legs just were you're paralyzed um, I've seen I've seen guys who've had spinal cord injuries who are um, have done everything they can to become able-bodied. It's the same scenario. Mm-hmm. So, like there was a guy who used to go to the Shepherd Center um, who had a uh, he drove. He had a special setup on his he was lower body spinal cord injury, mm-hmm. and he drove. He had a special setup so he could just use his his hands for the brake and the accelerator and the steer. And um, but he had a chair too that he used. But he was one of those guys. One of those guys that he, he put himself. He could he could like he could get on, buck himself in on the chair and get on a rope and you know pull himself all the way up. And he had he had a jeep. He would park his jeep and his wheelchair was in the back of the jeep. Yeah. And he had a, a frame, a rack in there, it may have been custom made. And he would literally get out, climb around like like a monkey swinging on trees, climb around and just hand hand his way over there. And with one hand, he reached in and grabbed his wheelchair, put it on the ground, flip it open, and then swing himself down, land to the thing. Holy shit! Like he was, it was, it was, it was like his gymnast. It was yeah. amazing. Yeah, and his upper body was just jacked. It's huge. Oh, one big muscle. You do the same thing in gymnasts. Yeah. Huh. So there's multiple there's multiple ways to get to hypertrophy, um, and this is one kind of more direct answer to this question because there's so many cool little bits and pieces to this story. Is that if you have someone, and we don't know about Ronnie or um, uh, there's those other possibilities of injections or what have you that may explain the differences in why Ronnie's calves maybe got worse and biceps were better for Marcus and his triceps. But if you have someone who's genetically gifted, who does really, really well, like whatever they do, they tend to grow much better than the average person right off the right out of the right out of the shoot. Hmm. They're really so they don't have to do the trial and error necessarily that someone with more mediocre genetics has to do. So it may be that they would have to train their calves or a weak muscle group in a different way, and they never get around to that. Um, And we're going to see those people who are prominently, like really amazing bodybuilders with one sort of missing body part 
um, more often. Thank you for tuning in to another podcast here at Think Big Bodybuilding Media. If we've provided value to you today, then please consider contributing to our show. You can help support the show through Patreon. Every $5 helps to pay for the software and the hardware and everything else that goes into making a podcast. You can also contribute by using our code at True Nutrition. True Nutrition has been our title sponsor for several years now. I'm super grateful for them. And I've believed in True Nutrition supplements long before they sponsored our programming. You could use our code THINK for health supplements and performance supplements. Feel free to hit me up if you have any questions. And if you're in Canada, check out supplementsource.ca. They have free shipping over $99, huge discounts on overstock, short dated, and label change products. Plus, they have all your normal supplements too. Thank you guys for listening to the commercial. I hope you're having a great day and that your bodybuilding is going well. Let's get back to the shelf. Because they're so good. And then it's even more glaring when that is there. Oh yeah. But because they're so good, because they're so good, then they don't they don't do the trial and error that most of us have to do in order to figure out what works. Mm. And it can be all over the place. Mm. So we've got we've got the muscle that's involved, the satellite cell density that's there, which can vary what's happening over time with those, depending on the loading history of the person, how they locomote, like you, you know, walking around on your on your tippy toes all the time, for instance. Um, there's so many things that can go into this. So here's a Let's see what the next um, thing I have here. So this is an interesting one. There's this other other part of the story. Um, if you pull up the next thing I sent you, I think it, it has McDougal written at the top. Got it. So let's take a look at that. So this is a cool, a kind of a cool study. This is an old school one. This is the one study, this is another topic, but this is the one study that sort of suggested that um, – sarcoplasmic hypertrophy was potentially something that was going on. Okay. So that's another aspect of this. I'm not going to focus on that for now. But in this case, they had uh, bodybuilders with about seven years of training on average compared with um, – actually, they had un- untrained people, and they trained them for about five, six months. And afterwards – I think that's the – let me make sure that's the after. Yeah. So – um, after they compared after six months of training with uh, the seven years of training in their in their bodybuilders, and they bodybuilders still had about twenty seven percent larger arms after training, although they got decent growth with that six months of training. Okay. These guys, judging by their weight, they're like ninety eight kilos. So when they di- they were they were off season. If they dieted down, they would probably be middleweights. So their arms were like seventeen inches. Something like that. That's so. That's that's not bad for a middleweight, seventeen-inch arm. It's a big dude. Yeah, that's a good for arm for, for middleweight. That's a good size. So that's all that data is on the bottom there. If people can see that um, up top is what happened with fibers, and this is an old old uh, study. So they're still calling them fast twitch and slow twitch, type one, type two. Um, and you see the first two sets of bars there are the pre and post training for their kind of control group, their acutely trained group who spent a half of your training okay. and they got decent growth. Fiber area went up in both fiber types. Yeah. The interesting thing, if you compare that middle set of bars, which is six month post training with the quote unquote, they called them elite bodybuilders with seven years of training, their fibers are the same size. Well, how is it that the elite bodybuilders have arms that are, let's see, it's three and a half inches bigger? Hmm. If their fibers are the same size, 
Well, they probably have more fibers. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there's this hyperplastic potential that's there to get more fibers. Hypertrophy, this is why you hear, people will hear me say muscle growth probably more often than hypertrophy because hypertrophy technically means an increase in the size of the cell. In this case, muscle cells. Hyperplasia means an increase in the number of the cells. So when you measure muscle growth, when you measure fiber size, you're measuring hyperplasia. When you uh, want to talk about how big a muscle's gotten and you use a, a, an MRI or a CAT scan or ultrasound to measure the, the muscle thickness or the cross-sectional area, the volume, then you're measuring muscle growth. But you didn't measure hypertrophy. People just call it hypertrophy. They just use that term generically, but it's actually technically not correct. Hmm. No big deal. But it's important because... It sounds good. See, it sounds real sciencey. It is real sciencey. You'll see, you'll see, but you have, that's the thing is like in this case, if you just looked at, I mean, like here's an interpretation of that study. If they didn't make any circumference measurements, they didn't, which they didn't measure the whole muscle size. They just made circumference measurements. And they noted in there, they, I don't think they even did, they did skin folds and the skin folds were about the same. So they wasn't like the, um, you know, the bodybuilders were really fat or something like that, which you wouldn't expect. But if you look at the post six months of training and compare that to seven years of training, that suggests there was no hype. The extra six and a half years of training did not create any muscle hypertrophy. That's what those data say in terms of in terms of fiber. But you look at those. You, the one's got the one guy's got four, how many inches bigger arms? Like it's obvious who's who the bodybuilders are and yeah. who the people are who are just a half a year into training. Hmm. So it does make a difference if you're looking at hypertrophy. You get much larger relative increases in fiber size than you'll typically see in muscle size. Actually, you might get a 30% increase in fiber size, but the muscle only maybe gets 10% bigger. Hmm, That's because okay. not all of the muscle is just fiber. There's other things that are in there. Hmm. So, so that, that's the other potential is, um, it could be for whatever reason that someone is just lacking in satellite cell density in a particular muscle. Um, and satellite cells would, one thing they're involved with as I mentioned before is increasing the number of nuclei that are available in the muscles that are getting muscle cells that are getting larger but they also are potentially fusing to become brand new muscle fibers so the former is hypertrophy the latter would be hyperplasia so if someone has is limited in terms of satellite cells in a particular muscle um, and they vary across if you look at like compare like muscles of the eye so we got so we got muscles more than just biceps, triceps, quads, hamstrings. We have muscles of the eye, which are super duper fast. Hmm. They they they've got there's some actually other contractile proteins in some of those muscles. The muscles of the masseter, your jaw, super duper strong. Hmm. There's, a, there's a different uh, a different myosin in there. You've got different satellite cells. Yeah, it's pretty which cool. Which makes sense. Uh, yeah. Right. So. Um, there's, there's potential variability in a given individual in the number of satellite cells that they have, the relative of density, which is important, um, the relative amount of growth that you can get from those different fiber types, and the extent to which potentially, I haven't even seen this study, maybe someone's, maybe some evidence, but you know, if you've got satellite cells that are associated with type 2 fibers versus type 1 fibers, which of those is, is best, which of those populations of satellite cells um, is more likely to be able to contribute to hyperplasia, which seems like it could be important 
that's that this this um, McDougal study, the one we just looked at, suggested hyperplasia is important. So I think I've got one more figure here to, to go through. That's kind of interesting. Ah, yeah, this one's funny. This one's cool too. A little bit off topic, but it's the same kind of thing. Which one? Is it is all way. Yeah, that's a lot. I think it's just the third one I sent you. Um, this one's fiber number. Um, actually, yeah, go the one before that. This says female bodies. It says all way at the very top, two sets uh, of bars. Look at that one first. I can resend it if you need. They're it. so small, I can't quite tell. Was this it? There we go. Sorry. Right. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Cool. So this is a cool one. This one they compared um, male and female bodybuilders. Okay. And they've got the um, the mean fiber area uh, here is um, bigger in men than in women. So what you see in in the stu- most of the studies with men and women is they get the same relative growth um, percentage growth in fibers or whole muscle area. Okay. Women just smart start off with smaller fibers. They grow to the same relative percentage. No kidding. So they end up with smaller muscles. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so their fibers are just smaller and you can see that there. It's pretty interesting. So women tend to have more type one fibers too. Yeah. No kidding. So, I mean, I, I just, uh, get rid of this for just a second. Um, sure. you know, we, I, I guess, there's almost like you just think like women don't grow as much muscle as men, but just percentage wise mm-hmm. they do is what you're telling me right now. Yeah. Oh huh. yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. The, the cool, like my favorite little anecdote is, is that you see upper body strength. There's, you know, substantial difference between men and women, you know, okay. 40, 50%. Yeah. Bench, you can see that, although the, the, some of the best women bench pressers are now are getting pretty freaking close. Um, and, and, and nothing against this, but there's probably antigen use that's involved there too. So you wonder to what extent, obviously, you know, we're pulling these amazing athletes out of the woodwork more so now than maybe 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. But at what extent does, does and, do androgens um, equate the playing field in terms of the, the fiber growth that can happen in yeah. men versus women? But women ha- didn't have more of their muscle in the lower body, mm. relatively speaking, than men. So if you look at body weight, even they got more body fat, relatively speaking, if you look at um, muscle mass distribution and do like relative strength measurements on men versus women. So with a, like a leg press, many women are really, really close. Okay. That's why if you want to like, if you want to like test your, uh, test yourself, train lower body with a woman who's in shape. Yeah. 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 Cause she's going to be able to hang with you weight wise, pretty good, relatively speaking. And plus they've got better ability. They've got better a lot of times more type ones helps with that a better ability to recover this whole other story there that would be a fun topic at some point oh yeah we can cover that we can get to that that'd be fun um we had a um i did a strength testing lab back when i was university professor in cali and there was a guy who was he was kind of the the star of the baseball team actually he's the best player and um we need to have a wanted to have a, a a gender comparison so he was going to be the guy to do a leg press. We had one of those really old school, like universal leg presses with the selectorized stack and the little itty bitty foot plates. You yeah, seen those? Oh God, yeah. I yeah, know exactly what you're barely, talking about. If your foot slips off, you're screwed, you know? <laughs> um, and uh, so he was, you know, 200 pounds at least, and she was 100 pounds. Um, and we did the test. She was completely untrained, and he had been lifting for years. Um and we did the strength test, one rep max, and then you know he lifted the whole stack or pretty close to it, 
and she got half the stack. And then we relativized it to body weight. She actually beat him. No so kidding. Stronger than he was. That's yeah, right. he was by a little bit, like five, ten percent. Yeah, and he was like, he was embarrassed, like literally. <laughs> and I'm like, this is you see this. Yeah. So, so that so we have that interesting phenomenon, and so now let's pull up this. This is from the same study. This next, this last slide, ah, okay, which is pretty cool. Our last com combination of figures. All right. So, this is an interesting one. So what they can do with, um, they kind of made an estimate of the number of fibers an individual has. And um, they have fiber area, which they measured, and they also measured cross-sectional area of the, of the biceps. So let's start, let's just start at the bottom. Um, this one's kind of the easiest one to, to look at. The more fibers you have, the bigger the biceps area was. So that kind of makes sense. If we think back to that, other study where you had six months of training and seven years of training having the same fiber sizes, but the seven-year tr trainees, the bodybuilders, had much bigger muscles, it means they had to have had more fibers. If their fibers were the same size, but they've got bigger muscles, they just they have to have more fibers. This speaks to hyperplasia. This is another piece of evidence here where the number of fibers you have correlates with the size of the biceps here. Hmm. Um, and they also found, interestingly enough, that's, and I would look at the top here, that there was an inverse correlation between the fiber area and the fiber number. So the bigger your, the smaller your fibers are, the more you tended to have. It, it almost would suggest um, that there's a possibility that as you grow and get better, that the fibers might be get, get smaller. Um, so that's, that's kind of an interesting thing. The, the, the bigger the area, the bigger, the, the smaller, the, the larger, the, the smaller, the number of fibers. Hmm. So, so here's the, here's, and I didn't pull anything up from this. I kind of ran out of time, but you can, you can, you can move that, uh, there, that figure. So the most impressive study showing muscle growth. Um, was a study done with quail with the with the weighted the weighted um, uh, wing studies? We talked about this one here. I think this was in like in our one hundred to one hundred two series. It's been in like it. every seventh episode. The quail study yeah, comes up. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's the <laughs> so good. I'm glad you're remembering. So the cool thing there is this is where they did progressive overload with these quails. So they had they had to sort of remove. Um, some of the quails from the study so they could measure the fiber size and they'll measure the, the muscle weight as they went through about a month's worth of this um, stretch overload model. So they hang a weight off the, uh, uh, the wing of the quail and then they measure the anterior latissimus dorsi muscle. It's kind of like hanging a dumbbell off of your arm and looking to see what happens to your trap. Yeah. And initially compared to the control animals, the fibers got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Right as the muscle got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then in the latter half, and they were doing like two days on, one day off, and added weight progressively over time, and they produced more muscle increase in muscle size, in this case wet weight, than in any other study to date, as far as I know. They're like over 200% increase in the muscle size. So this would be like taking someone, you know, and putting on 100 pounds of muscle in a month. <laughs> you, can't, you can't do that, you know, with the whole body. But um, in this model, it worked because just that one muscle that's being stressed. 
So the muscle kept on growing in the second two second two weeks, the latter okay. half, but the fibers got smaller. So the fibers were getting smaller as the muscle was continuing to grow. No kidding. Because yeah. they were because they were adding more fibers mm. as they went went over. So there's so many factors that lead that are potentially involved with how a muscle grows. Do the fibers just tend to get bigger? Do the satellite cells, are they equipped better for fusing themselves and leading to hyperplasia? Um, the loading history of the individual, is that involved? Um, the responsiveness to antigens in terms of this, we've got males and females who just tend to have, females have smaller muscle fibers. So if we add antigens to that picture, for someone perhaps who's, who's a male already and yeah and you now you go super physiological with antigens they go from you know uh eugonadal to two grams a week what happens there i don't i don't know what happens in terms of like of hyperplasia versus hypertrophy yeah. i haven't seen that seen that eased out so it's a it's a very very cool uh cool question to ask as to why that is um and the thing that people don't necessarily do is try to figure out uh what training is going to work best mm. when what you've been doing isn't working for that weak muscle group. Yeah. And there's one other, one other piece to this puzzle. And this is, I've mentioned this before too, but it's kind of the important thing is that the whole point of, of the weight training is to figure out how to make the adaptation into an increase in muscle size. That's, that's like, um, it's sort of like you're going to have a, uh, you're going to have a group, large group of people over to your house for a party. And you've got two choices as, as to how you can accommodate that. You can go rent some chairs and, you know, get a little, little temporary structure to, you know, provide some shade from the sun or in case it rains. That's a cheap, quick, done, done easy. That's no problem. Which is equivalent to just changing the mitochondrial content or increasing the enzymes that are involved with metabolism. So, when you come back and do that training stimulus again, you try to train again, you got better endurance. Instead of getting 10 reps, you get 13 because okay. you're more equipped now energetically. That's a really down and dirty way to adapt. The, the larger overhaul is to go and like, well, I'm going to build an entirely new structure with plumbing and HVAC and electrical and everything else that has like I'm going to build, you know, with, with, with church pews in it and permit, seats that are permanent, permanent structures. Yeah. A permanent structure, exactly. That's what we're trying to do with hypertrophy. Yeah. So some people who don't, there's not non-responders to muscle growth. Um, stimulus. They just don't grow from a given a given stimulus that they get. We saw that in the in the studies where they did the five versus three or two times a week in the same person, and some people didn't grow from one of those training programs, but they grew from the other one, and vice versa. So. Because there, there was likely some adaptations. I didn't see that they tested this. I don't think it's been there. But if you looked at the individuals who got no growth, let's say out of the, the two or three times a week training, they got, the muscle didn't increase in size. I bet their performance went up because they're doing progressive overload in the study. Okay, yeah. So they got better. They could, they could do more reps. If you took them back to the initial weight they used at the beginning of the study, they probably could have doubled the reps. So there was an adaptation there. Enzymes, fatigue resistance, more capillaries, buffering capacity, all sorts of things changed, but the muscle didn't get bigger. Hmm. So you could, you could even be someone who's in the gym 
And if you're just looking at your weight and your reps, and it's like, you know, everything, I keep on getting stronger. I'm just keeping it simple. This is fine. Great way to do it. I've, I've gotten better on all my exercises and I've grown all my muscles except for the weak one. Hmm. Why isn't that one growing? I don't get it. It's hmm. getting better. It may be adapting in an entirely different manner. Hmm. You may have to do something completely different to get it to get it to grow, um, get it get the cells to hypertrophy so that you get muscle growth, because it's really well equipped for that reason. And it could be like for calves is a, is a, is a, is a is a potential. It's a really calves is a really paradoxical one potentially because you have this situation of chronic overuse, like the compensatory hypertrophy. Your calves are grown because they've always done that, yeah. and that was an adaptation that your muscles took on like this makes sense you know and maybe maybe that if you if you didn't have this locomotor pattern and and you started as an adult it wouldn't work as well I maybe there's an interaction yeah between what happened during growth and development when everything's sort of figuring out okay what does our environment need that's an epigenetic phenomenon yeah muscle cells will there there will be changes in the methylation of the histones in the nuclei of those muscle cells and probably in the satellite cells where they, if they've been trained previously, the adaptations that training um, occur more rapidly when you retrain after a detraining period. Hmm. Yeah. So the cells remember. So there's something that is learned along the course of our lifetime in terms of the loading history a muscle is, is exposed to that is going to give it a better proclivity to adapt to that particular stress down the road. Hmm. So... That person who gets better in all those exercises and their calf raises, everything goes up, and they don't get any growth. It's like mm -hmm. that muscle may not may not be equipped for any of those reasons to adapt into that particular training regime. Mm -hmm. So you're gonna have to find another hack to produce hypertrophy, as opposed to just getting enzymatic changes. Makes me wonder so, when you say you know the, the the muscle could could be trained early, maybe during development to grow. I wonder mm -hmm. about like that baby Hercules or, you know, you see these kids like some little, you know, six year old oh, rushing yeah. kid that has abs and delts and everything else. Like, I wonder what their development will be like, you know, when they're 20, are they, Ooh. are they doing something now that's going to permanently alter the way that their muscle will grow for the good? Possibly. He looks normal. I saw something years ago now of him, like when he was early twenties and, Oh, he's that, that baby like Hercules trained. guy grew up. Yeah. I think I, I mean, people said people suspect that his parents might have been giving him some extra, extra goods. Yeah, yeah, I'd imagine so. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, but but you know, we know that you know previous exposure to, to steroids um, does seem to produce a muscle memory effect where the regrowth is. So he might you know be a hyper responder if you were to if you were to get juiced. I have a feeling now if you're six years old and and I mean you maybe you loved that at the time, but if you were kind of forced to be on that regiment the first thing i'd want to do when i'm 20 years old is probably not do what my parents made me do to begin with yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. i'd be like yeah, yeah, I've, yeah i did that i did that yeah because yeah. he probably missed out on so much you know yeah. so many things because like like six hours of training or something like that a Jeez. day and yeah yeah it was something just kind of crazy but that's what you know the eastern block athletes have um eastern block you know the um, U.S. The, the Russians knew this. The Soviet Union, um, some of the communist countries, they knew you take people who got um, 
the kids who've got the genetic potential, and then you maximize that by getting them as early as you can in life and, and putting them into their training regime. Yeah. Well, listen, what do you say? Talk to your what? I was going to, I was going to change subject. Yeah. Just like, just, just my friend who, um, she was bench pressing from the age of six. I met her when she was in college. Yeah. She had pretty much normal strength on everything, but she could bench 275. Weighing about 140. Okay. Totally natural. Totally natural. She'd go into the gym into the, into the rec center, um, University of Georgia, and she'd lie down and warm up with 135 for a set of 10. Guys would be rushing over <laughs> thinking she let's know what's on the bar. And then she'd bang out 10, and then, yeah, she'd, you know, she'd, she'd train with two and a quarter. What, what was her, like, chest and shoulder development like? It looked – it was good. She was a swimmer, and she played tennis. She ended up being a state champion in both, I believe. So, like – she, her her parents were both educate. They're both educators, both um, uh, childhood development experts. His dad, her, her dad has a PhD, and they knew you know there's the importance of early childhood exposure to to things um, in terms of eventual adult development. So they, she just started. She loved, she loved playing sports. I mean, she wasn't forced to do any of this, but um, so they had her. Like he said, well, she's got to do some upper body strength. He was an exercise physiologist. Like she's got to do some upper body strengthening. So she just started bench pressing. They go for their morning runs or whatever as general conditioning. Yeah. And they come home and he had a bench press in the garage. And she just, I don't know what she did, like, you know, a few sets of bench press, but from the age of six. Yeah. And so she developed that neurological pattern. It was just a groove. She used to, um, they, uh, they like had her play a game. It was called Math Blaster. It was like on like one of the old, you know, uh, old, old computers. It was, it was kind of like a space invaders game, but you had to like do the math really fast in your head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, and she's, she's, she, now she has a PhD in molecular biology. Okay. Um, I don't think she was on the podcast, but, but she scored a perfect score on her SAT. I think when she was 13, Holy shit. Or maybe she was 15. Yeah. So but she's she, a genius. They, they basically. drilled her for that. Yeah. They drilled her for that. Yeah. But, but she's not like people with that level of intelligence or with those types of test scores, you're like, like okay, like your your head's working at a totally different level than mine. Like, yeah. I don't have any idea what's going on up in there. Speaking you're like, you're like five Thank you. ahead of me. Being a genius, yeah, your your uh, your household genius there. Yes, you came by to drop off yeah. my shaker cup. Thank you, dear. So, so yeah, there's something to say. So, um, yeah, you may, you know, you don't. I guess I wouldn't give up if you think you miss your your window of ch- your childhood window of opportunity in terms of muscle growth, but. You got to think outside the box, you know, yeah. and that's what a lot of times people with great physiques have never had to do, so they don't do it. Um, talk to a, you know, friends who've got. You've probably seen this. The, some of the best athletes who've gotten, they've gotten all the way they've gotten, just kind of doing kind of whatever, and then they, so they haven't developed the problem solving skills. Absolutely, that you and I have. So that's why those those muscle groups may stay weak they just keep doing what they've been doing and they keep getting what they've been getting which is not an improvement in the weak muscle groups yeah because they haven't figured out a novel strategy remember uh it, it was rumored that arnold got calf implants which i i'm guessing yeah. probably didn't happen uh but maybe you know I, maybe he figured something out because i mean there was a point he didn't have calves and then he came back and he had calves so i mean yeah I always said it was that he he cut off all of his pants. Yeah, yeah. So he had to look at his calves all the time. You know, I don't know. I like to, I, what I've never seen is, and you think someone would have done this as a before and after 
on his calves. You would you think. Know, where yeah. You, I, somebody did somewhere. Somebody has somewhere. Okay. Yeah. If you're in the Facebook group, the Think Big Facebook group, and you want to do one for us, we'd love to see the before and after of Arnold without yeah. good calves and Arnold with good calves. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to see that too. All right. Well, listen, we we've got a, yeah, we've got a few of them here. Let me see what we can dig All up right. here. Um, and I know we had one in the live feed. Anybody who else who wants to drop anything in the live feed, uh, feel free. Um, all right. So here's one, Clennon Cramps. He says, is this uh, nervous system overstimulation and what are ways to fix it? So we talked all about clenbuterol. By the way, we got a lot of really good feedback on that episode. Thank you, everybody, who had commented on that one. Uh, and I think that was a really good episode, Scott. It was, it was very... Mm -hmm. It was great science, and you broke it down in a real simple way that was easy to understand. I think a lot of people connected. Yeah, I got that impression too. People were digging it. Um, so, Clen can reduce can produce a moderate, at least, hypokalemia, so low potassium levels in the blood. Cramps are generally thought to be a function of what's going on in the nerves that innervate the muscles. So it's some sort of electrolyte dehydration issue that causes, um, uh, eases depolarization in those nerves. So they, they tell the muscles to contract more easily. And that's, that's what you'd have when you have a cramp, yeah. um, or, or some, something like a cramp. So, um, taurine is the, is the best, best anti-cramp supplement. I know but it's awesome for that. It works really, really well. A little bit of potassium is not a bad idea necessarily if you're getting like this is why people say have some bananas because bananas are high in potassium tends yeah. to work i tend to suggest people just take a multi-mineral which has potassium in it you don't want to like take in a bunch of potassium the the 99 milligram potassium pills that you see you know that's what, you, what it typically is dosed at is because that's like it's like one percent one pills like one percent of your rda or rdi because if you take too much potassium, you can cause too high or too low. You can cause heart arrhythmias, and that's it's not something anyone wants. So, yeah, um, there's tonic water, it's a quinine and tonic <clears throat> water. It's a possibility. Yeah, um, and and just drinking more fluid. So that gives your kidneys a better opportunity to to make sure that things are that your electrolyte levels are where they should be. Yeah. So, but you can dehydrate yourself. You can you can dilute the calcium or the uh, potassium even more. Yeah, you, you got to keep so, you got to keep the out. electrolytes and everything up if you're drinking more water. <clears throat> um, I had a couple things I wanted to mention. One, I I just told the guys on Blood Sweat and Gear the other week. We were talking about quinine, and I ran an experiment mm -hmm. where I kept tonic water next to my bed. I would get uh, calf cramps all the time when I was when I was prepping and I was on higher doses of clen and I'd wake up and I'd drink like some salt water real quick to fix it. And then I wanted to see, well, will the quinine work? So, you know, will the tonic water work instantly, Scott? Like I would get the crap, the camp, the cramps where like you couldn't even stand up, you know, because it was just mm -hmm. so bad and took a drink and literally within seconds it, it relaxed. So it's crazy how fast so, that worked. There is, um, there's a, a study, so people have used pickle juice too. Oh, high yeah. Sodium. Yeah. And there's a particular study where um, pickle juice literally had that exact same immediate effect. Um, and it was before there was any noticeable change in the sodium levels in the blood. 
there's there's some sensing mechanism, there's some osmosensing mechanism that is probably re- reacting to fluid intake. Some of it's maybe unconscious, some of it maybe it's totally conscious. Hmm. Um, that's at work here. So you can literally just have the pickle juice in your mouth. Hmm. Um, and um, the, you'll get the effect on, on, on reducing the cramps, reducing the electrical activity in the, in the cramping muscle. So, yeah, they've done, like, there's mouth rinsing experiments mm. showing that just, like, just rinsing your mouth with a, car- a sweet carbohydrate solution yep. can have ergogenic effects. You don't take in the carbs. You don't swallow it. Like, you don't get any carbs. There's no, there's no fuel that's coming from what you put in your mouth because you spit it back out. But it'll have that, it'll have that impact. And I've, I've, I've done this a couple of times to people um, when I've been at shows backstage or someone like when after they come off and they haven't had water for a while because yeah. it happened to me all the time. Um, I always I always know it. So you you go and you like woke up, you did everything, you dried yourself out right, you know your your pee is just dribbling, and then like you haven't peed for like four hours. It's like you finally get done, all done. You can drink all you want. So you got your bottle of water that you brought along, so you'd have something to drink when you're done. And you drink literally halfway through. Oh fuck, I gotta pee right now. Yeah. It it'll the urgency to urinate it happens instantly. Yeah, I've, and I remember like that. saying to someone, I was "Like, hey, where's my water?" I said, "I said, just pay attention to this." I said, I'm not trying to put it in your mind, but do you got to pee right now? No, like okay. And then they take a drink. It's like, I got to pee. Like, how did you know it was going to happen? I'm like, because it happens to me all the time. Yeah. So it's pretty. It's pretty cool. And that's a really like, how did this? How did this particular? It's like a reflex, essentially. Hmm has developed it's a it, that's that is i think that fits the definition of, of a reflexive physiological phenomenon because it's just getting into your mouth like you're drinking it it's like like the quinine hasn't had an effect it's not had the chance to reach your yeah. neurons or anything it's just there yeah um so some of it could be purely psychological because you know you're taking something but it happens with the pickle juice it happens people just drink water and they're sense to urinate so something about how we um how our nervous system uh, senses our hydration state and our electrolyte state is 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 very acutely sensed with this um, this this reflex phenomenon or f- phenomena. There's probably many of them. Yeah. So I think that's kind of cool. I haven't seen it really explored anywhere except for that one pickle juice study and the and research study. With the, the water and peeing thing, I think that's a, a great tool in contest prep when you're trying to get dry. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you can, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons like you can drink a little bit of water and it'll stimulate you to keep peeing too. Yeah. Yeah. You some know? people, I, have, I haven't really done that so well because I employ so many other things, but yeah. um, you just got to be careful unless you're measuring it. Like you can end up drinking as much as you're peeing and you don't, you oh, don't sure. progress anywhere. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've yeah. used that, but like keeping water in and then gradually reducing it, but making sure that you keep it in and then, you know, check on yeah. people like, hey, when we check, you know, check back in an hour with new pictures and mm-hmm. let me know how many times you pee between now and then. And we can kind of. Yeah. Th- the other thing I was going to mention to you was uh, just a random thought I was having. And it's interesting. I think Andrew Barry was having kind of a similar thought that. So I was looking into some stuff about taurine and um, and I saw that low taurine, there's a relationship to low taurine and heart issues. And. Mm. Um, and I know that Clen depletes taurine from what I understand. Mm-hmm. So I know yeah. that if I keep taurine in the system, um, I know that that's going to help to keep me from cramping on Clen. And I know that Clen 
can also be bad for your heart. I wonder, mm -hmm. is, is there a relationship to the fact that it depletes taurine if low taurine in your heart causes heart issues? Yeah, um, I, I, my, my suspicion is related to free radical production. Okay. Taurine is a really, really good antioxidant, actually. Um, there's another study showing that in rats, it prevented um, nandrolone toxicity in the gonads. Taurine did? Of these rats. Taurine did, yeah. Yeah, hmm. so, so it's, got, yeah, it's got free radical quenching abilities. Hmm. And your heart is the penultimate um, producer of penultimate oxygen user, but hmm. that also means produce lots of um, superoxide radicals. So every time when you're in the process of aerobic respiration, um, oxidative phosphorylation, it's a great term. Um, so you're using oxygen and it's going through the electron transport chain. And it's basically this scenario where you're, it's kind of like letting water flow through a dam. So you're harnessing the potential energy of that water to turn the turbines and produce energy. You, you let these electrons flow through, you create a proton gradient and what happens at the end there is the water and hydrogens combine with electrons, or sorry, the oxygen and hydrogens combine with electrons and you get water. Um, but every once in a while, one, two, three, four, five percent of the time, instead of having water produced, you get an electron loaded onto an oxygen molecule and you produce a superoxide radical. And that's a free radical. So that free radical is, it's like a radical, like a person's radical. It goes and then it will cause other, it will damage other molecules. This is what free radical damage is all about. So the heart, because it, it's producing so much energy, it's constantly going. It's producing lots of free radicals. So it's, so it's, um, it's antioxidant status is very important. So if Clen, Clen is going to substantially reduce the antioxidant status, hmm. plus it's turning on, it's increasing the oxidative phosphorylation it's because it's it's going to act it's a sympathomimetic it's activating your heart your heart rate goes up since your blood pressure too so it's producing more free radicals and then reducing your ability to quench those just just by virtue of reducing taurine status in the yeah. heart cells so you've got then you've got um you've got the damage of free radicals there hmm. that is there no, just a random kind of side thought. <clears throat> yeah no taurine's great taurine's a great um very, very worthwhile supplement. I've, I've worked it into my daily, my daily plan now. I used to just use it, you know, at like during times I was using Clen or times that I thought I might cramp, stuff like that. But now it's part of my regular go-to. I can see your coffee in the morning where you've got the 30 grams of uh, the collagen and then you add like five grams of creatine and then because creatine doesn't taste like anything and then you yeah, got five grams of taurine and yeah. you just have like a mountain, a mountain of white powder. <laughs> A little bit of coffee mixed in. It's like a coffee mountain, coffee powder sludge. Mix some uh, some MCT in there. You know that's the new thing. Or in the, oh, you know several yeah. years ago, people started doing that. The bulletproof yeah. coffee. It'd be yeah. good to go. All right. So here's another real sciencey one for you, Scott. Um, wow. Talking back about so this once again relates to the last episode. We were talking about uh, P450. So uh, does using that supplement that inhibits P450 increase stress on the liver. Is there any differences difference at all uh, by the sounds of its effectiveness when all gear users, even with injectables, should be using this product to increase the active 
life of the drug administered, assuming he or she is not using any other chemicals that need that metabolism factor. So I think, you know, one thing I think would be really interesting, and we kind of mentioned this, I asked you before the show to talk about would be like, what what is the P450 pathway? Yeah, so the liver has kind of simplified to sort of two phases that are involved with detoxifying xenobiotics, so foreign foreign chemicals, which are drugs or toxins or things that aren't produced in your body that come from the outside. And the um, the first is involves these P450 enzymes, these cytochrome enzymes, and what those do is they and there's oodles and oodles of thousands oodles is a very technical term thousands and thousands of these um and they uh some of them are used very generically and some of them are used more specific but these modify um and involves electrons actually modifies uh the xenobiotic the foreign the drug let's in this case so that it can then be um conjugated with something and get gotten rid of so it's sort of like Imagine someone comes in your house and you got people coming through your house, your business all the time who you may have to have chauffeured out. So the first thing you need to do is make sure that they, that you're, that you're the people who are monitoring your door to get rid of these unwanted, these unsavory characters, um, can take them out easily. So that's what the P450 enzymes does. It modifies them so then they can be conjugated by your, your bodyguards. And then once they're conjugated, they can be lost in the stool um, or, or excreted from the body. Okay. So, so the first phase one is the P450 enzymes, and phase two is conjugation of some sort. And there are various ways that that can happen. Um, uh, Glucuronidation or sulfation, there's actually differences there um, that are involved with, with anabolic steroid metabolism. So... The problem is that that first, that phase one produces free radicals, hmm. um, and those are toxic. So that's why most, almost all of your liver supplements, um, things like alpha lipoic acid or acetyl L-cysteine or the, uh, the herbs in live 52, um, those are all, all have free radical quenching abilities. Either they Either they turn on the enzymes that are involved with free radical quenching or they are um, antioxidants in and of themselves. So here's the thing. Um, yeah, as far as penultimate damage to the liver, it's probably going to depend on the person and the drug because oftentimes there's multiple pathways. It's a very – it's a, it's a – I, I actually have a <clears> – <throat> I can send this to you. Why not? I think I have it here available. Ah, cool. I think. Yeah, let me pull it up right now. Take it to PowerPoint. So I was putting together a presentation. Um, we talked about this on um, tamoxifen, Novodex. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to hear about that. Yeah, I got to put together my uh, my medical um, waiver type of thing. Let's see. Just send this. <laughs> this is just an example, one that I just knew I had fresh. I'm going to text this to you, Scott. All right. It's fucking crazy. 
Ooh, look at this. Yeah, it's nifty, huh? Ooh. <laughs> let me know if you. Like you yeah, let me know if I love these things. Let me know if you want me to zoom in on any part yeah. in particular. So yeah, that bottom circle we can just move that out. If you can zoom in on the um, kind of the upper left, let's bring it back down. You can see tamoxifen is at the top there. Yeah. All Oop. right. So those all every where, where it says sip there, those are all those are all P four fifty enzymes. And what you can see is that, like, for instance, if you look at tamoxifen in the center there and it goes to 4-hydroxytamoxifen, okay. those are all P450 enzymes that can do that. Okay. They can, they can make that conversion. And there's one, for instance, like the CYP3A4 that is involved with tamoxifen to 4-hydroxytamoxifen. Yeah, I see. And then 4-hydroxytamoxifen to endoxifen. It's also involved with tamoxifen to 4 and Desmethyl tamoxifen, <laughs> so it's involved with multiple pathways. It, 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 so it, but it, so if you inhibit that one, for instance, someone is going to have to rely on other enzymes. Okay. For metabolism, you may completely block or just slow metabolism, or you may end up end up changing the pathway. So if you cut off the, uh, one, water's rolling, water's flowing down a, a mountainside. It's got multiple streamlets that it's in. You block one more water is going to flow down the other ones. So depending on what you do and which drug this person or which drugs the person might have in their system and the isoforms of these particular cytochromes, these P450 enzymes, um, for instance, the one that I think it's a CYP3A4. Let me check. I can double check and see what I wrote in my Yeah, no, it's a CYP2D6. Okay. So you can see that one right there next to tamoxifen, right to the right of it, CYP2D6. Okay. That one's involved with all those same places as CYP3A4 is pretty much. Okay. So, so that's a that's one. There are, uh, there are at least 100 um, polymorphisms of that enzyme. Yeah. That have been identified. That means there are a hundred different versions of that enzyme that someone could have. So, depending on the relative activity of that enzyme and the other in the CYP3A4, and the person and the drug, you could change the metabolites that are produced, and change the drug, and end up producing different fluxes in free radicals, um, and end up causing more or less damage to the liver depending on what pathways of, um, of detoxification are followed in terms of creating something that can then be um, lost by the system. So in this case, like all, all these metabolites here, yeah, the, like the endoxifen, that, this, I'm just kind of jumping ahead, but tamoxifen doesn't really have binding affinity to the estrogen receptor. It's endoxifen that does. No kidding. So it turns into something yeah. else that binds. Yeah. Endoxifen is the main one. I think it's 4-hydroxytamoxifen. Both of those have, but endoxifen is considered the main actual serum. If you can slide that thing up a little bit, yep. um, you see you see that endoxifen is an arrow that goes uh, kind of the bottom left and it arches all the way down to nor endoxifen. Okay. Yeah. 
norindoxifen, and here's the question that I'm I'm still kind of digging into because I haven't found uh, found this. It may not even be out there yet. But norindoxifen, if you compare its anti-aromatase activity, it's on par with that of letrozole. Really? Yeah. Now, so yeah. that's the thing. Huh. Go ahead. Oh well, I just well, I just wanted to see where that went. So that's the cell. Yeah. That's- Target cells, yeah, antioxidant. This antioxidant. is really cool. I can, I can, yeah. I can get with these things. Like I can read this. You know what I mean? Okay, good. I'm glad. Yeah. So that's the interesting thing is like, so you're someone. The effectiveness of tamoxifen is going to be a function of how much endoxifen you produce. Yeah. And okay. its impact on estrogen production is going to be a function of how much nor uh, endoxifen is produced, which is an anti. It's demethylated there. There are multiple pathways for that. Okay. And so, um, and you can see there's all sorts of other, there's multiple pathways to produce tamoxifen to endoxifen. Hmm. It can go through the 4-hydroxytamoxifen pathway on the right, or it can go to the left um, and end up there as well. Okay. Um, so that's Good. an example. Of the, there's actually another study. I've got this all in this thing that I, I plan on um, putting out as soon as I get done with it. Uh, in pr- actually pre and both postmenopausal women, and they found that basically about in about one third of those individuals, estrogen levels went up when they were taking tamoxifen. Really? But in the others, it's just stayed low. Hmm. So, so something's going on there. They may produce, maybe producing no. You would expect that if you block estrogen, just thinking in a very basic um, negative feedback loop way, if you block estrogen, then mm-hmm. the body will produce more of it. Because yeah. it senses that it's not there. I mean, it's, that's what you. That's why people use serms in men. You block the negative feedback of, of estrogen, and you get more testosterone. Because yeah. estrogen is estrogen levels are representative of testosterone levels. So, in those women, for instance, who had elevated levels of estrogen mm-hmm. after they took tamoxifen, which doesn't ha- didn't happen in two thirds of the women in this particular study, it may be, but that's a normal response to blocking the estrogen and they just for whatever reason don't produce much of the nor endoxifen which is the ai so their elevated estrogen levels they had elevated estrogen levels because they didn't have nor endoxifen being produced substantially but that's kind of unknown so but the interesting thing is that the the resultant estrogen levels were substantially different Hmm. um, in that one third of individuals so that's very cool. Um, that's fascinating to me. And, and, and it's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, just to bring that back up here for a second. It's fascinating to me. So it's not that simple, number one, that you take tamoxifen and, you know, that's just what you picture in your head. I'm looking at this whole web. So tamoxifen turns into all these different boxes. It's, it's mm-hmm. so far from what I think. Like, I think like, oh, I take... Uh, Novadex, and you know it breaks down to my stomach. It absorbs into my bloodstream, and then it goes right. to the estrogen cells. You know, or estrogen yeah. sites. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. so much more complex than that. And it makes me think too that if we're messing around with this, like, hey, I want to take this supplement that's going to interfere with the P450 pathway. Like, that's interfering with a whole lot of stuff. I'd have to think. Then, what about? Yeah. What about? internal stuff like things that we're like things that like are that we're already exogenously producing 
you know that that would be that that would be like a whole cascade of things we're we're altering then. Would be a major wrench in the works potentially. Yeah, I mean, tamoxifen is really a pro drug, according to this, because it's an endoxifen. Hmm. It's 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 like a pro hormone that the, where the pro hormone doesn't have any uh, implicit activity. Yeah. So it's acting as a pro drug. But you need to have conversion to get the effects. And not every, not all women who have um, breast cancer get tamox an effect from tamoxifen. It doesn't work universally for everyone. And you can imagine yeah. why when you look at all yeah. the enzymes that are yeah. involved. Yeah. So I'm going to bring that question so, back up now that we've done this uh, education. He says, um, does using that supplement that inhibits the P450 increase stress on the liver? Is there any difference at all? Uh, by sounds of its evidence, um, then all gear users, uh, even with injectables, should be using this product to increase the active uh, life of the drug being administered. So, yeah, so that would depend, like I said, on the drug and when how you change um, the metabolism of that drug and what that means in terms of how those metabolites, how many steps those metabolites um have to go through before they can be they can leave the body yeah so you may you may have you know levels of those metabolites along much longer um depends on your free radical status in the liver too you know so yeah. i have to go and look and probably could find this but um different there's i don't know to what extent a given molecule or type of molecule must be removed in that phase too so let's say i'm going to just this is purely like um, kind of an armchair, a wild-ass guessing here. But let's say that for a particular metabolite, um, it could either be um, sulfated or um, gluconerated. So out of glucose, or um, a, 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 it's like a glucose moiety to it, or a sulfate moiety. And then it can be taken out. So that's those are the... Um, uh, the bodyguards or your, you know, your people who escort the unwanted, the unsavory characters out of the house. So you've got two options there. And let's say for whatever reason, someone, um, one of those is, is not very available, but that particular metabolite is, is needs to be, needs to be escorted out through that mechanism. And so this individual, uh, when they take one of these Hesperidin or Naringin, they create more of that particular metabolite, which they lack the ability to rid the body of. And then that sends that metabolite off into other pathways that produce more free radicals because of the continued activity yeah. of the P450s. So you, you, you actually increase P450 activity, increase free radical stress because you've changed the metabolism that would normally be maybe even for that individual a very simple, not terribly stressful situation Mm -hmm. Because now those metabolites they don't get out. Hmm. They 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 they're, they're not they're not rid from the body because of that person's genetic abilities to do so with the new metabolites that are formed. So it's like you know another another simple analogy you can you could take a you could take a one wheel or you could take a bicycle or you could take a unicycle or you could walk or you could run. There's various ways to get from point A to point B. And if someone's used to being a bicyclist, and you say, okay, now get on this unicycle. Um, some people like, are like, yeah, I can ride a unicycle just as fast as a bicycle. I rode a unicycle for when I was growing up. Some people are like, I do is fall flat on my face. I can't ride a unicycle. Unicycle, 
is not going to work for me. Yeah. Metabolically speaking, you're changing the mode of transport for removal of those metabolites from those those xenobiotic toxins or what the body is basically considering toxins, those drugs from the body yeah. in a way that could be more toxic potentially. Hmm. But it's situational. You can't say an all or all or none. So um, that's hard. It's hard to know. And I've looked and looked. You know, it's not like in this case with tamoxifen because that's the nice thing about a drug that's been effective against cancer. You get lots of money to study that. Yeah. Um, it's funny. People say, you know, like, oh, the, and I, I get why they say this is like, you know, we don't want to cure cancer because it's too much of a moneymaker. Um, but you can imagine the number of research studies that went into figuring out that met those metabolic pathways. Oh, like that's I a can lot. Only imagine. Yeah, crazy, yeah. crazy, right? Yeah. So you don't, we don't see that when it comes to like, you know, Hey, how can we increase the half life of Dianabol so bodybuilders can get bigger? You know, you don't see that stuff on anabolic steroids because they don't have the medical applications that anti-cancer drugs do. Yeah. Um, so we don't know those P450 enzymes. We don't know those pathways in and out. We don't have specific inhibitors, um, that, that lead us into pathways that are less toxic but also prolong the active state, the active life, half-life of a given drug in a way that would make that drug more effective. That makes so much so, sense that we do have the ability. Like we, like if, if we were interested in figuring it out, oh, you know, they, like they could figure out Meathead? so much more, you know? Yeah, on Planet, Planet Meathead. Meathead yeah, you know, yeah. Like, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to make me president of Planet Meathead, you know? Then yeah. we're, that's what we're doing, Man. you know? Keeping yeah. bodybuilders safe, first and foremost. Yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely. All right. I got one here in the live feed from Tim. He says, um, hey, gents, can you talk about the difference between muscle fatigue and failure? So um, I don't, so here's the thing. People have started using the term fatigue in different ways in the last know, decade or so. Okay. So mu muscle fatigue, just sort of the classical definition is it's the, it's the relative amount of force, typically force that can be produced at a given state. Um, uh, and just, you can leave it at that actually. So if during the course of a, of an exercise bout, your force, your maximal force production is reduced by 50%, then that's your, that's your marker of fatigue. Um, you know, some people talk about fatigue as your relative kind of recovery state. Like you still have accrued fatigue. Um, so you train on a Monday and like, you know, if you've measured, try to go in and do the same exercises on Tuesday, then, you know, you're not going to be as strong because you've got muscle damage involved. Um, so fatigue in the classic sense, the way I've typically thought of it is a function of inability, acute inability of the muscle to produce force or power, um, or to maintain a power output due to metabolic fatigue byproducts and or some function of the nervous system or the, or the brain. Yeah. So you're psychologically fatigued, it just hurts too much, I, won't, I can't do it. There's various loci of fatigue, everything from the black box in here, the central governor, your brain, to the motor neurons um, there in your motor cortex that produce the movement patterns to the neuromuscular junction, potential fatigue and the depolarization waves that happen in skeletal muscle cells when they produce force. Then there's the acidity potentially, you know, that changes the activity of glycolytic enzymes and changes the shape of myosin. So you maybe don't get as much um, uh, 
power or work produced when you break down ATP, so you lose efficiency. There's everything from the beginning to the end is potential side of fatigue, and that happens. The more higher your work output, the higher the greater your fatigue is going to be. Yeah. Um, now the next question is what causes muscle failure, and that's you know momentary muscular failure is typically thought of as like what. Um, that's the inability to maintain a force output or maintain a rate of work production. So moving a hundred pound weight back and forth, eventually you reach a point where you're incapable of doing that. And that would be muscular failure. Um, you could break that down into concentric failure or eccentric failure. So ability to do another concentric repetition. That's why you can do force negatives a lot of those, actually, if you really want to kill yourself, you can do 10 reps and then your partners lift the weight up. You can get three or four more mm-hmm. because you've got greater efficiency or economy with eccentrics and more, more force produced with eccentric contractions and concentric. So, but the limiter on failure for most people, I think, is, is up here hmm. in terms of motivation. I would say and that. And yeah. having learned to push, yeah. Um, yeah, there's, uh, yeah, I mean, there's the studies that we talked about these, you know, where they take, you know, okay, go to estimate your reps in reserve, you know, and people say two or three and they're, they're off by 10. Mm, you yeah. just tell them, you know, get more. Yeah. So, so. Would, would you say then that, uh, so muscle failure, are you, are you saying that we, is, is that failure? That's not failure of the muscle then is, is what you're telling me. Yeah. I mean, in a research study, um, Failures also, I got to add this just to kind of complete the idea here is that it's maintaining that work output. If you're doing, talking about doing reps of resistance exercise with, with appropriate form and on a particular tempo. So in, in a controlled situation, so like you could keep going and then just make a widow maker out of it. Like you want me to do knee extensions? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. How many, how many, how many days can I go? I'll just, I'll just sit in the machine. And I won't stop. I didn't fail. Right. My set's not over until I get off the machine, right? So, but yeah, but you failed. You have, you're waiting 30 seconds between your reps, mm. and, and, and it's just pure willpower. Yeah. So there's that. But um, yeah, so failure, I think you answer your, kind of your question. A lot of it is potentially, yeah, in the, in the, in the brain, hmm. in motivation and all the inhibitory um, feedback that comes back to us that it hurts. Um and then, you know, all the hidden psychology as to why we just don't want to push ourselves to the point where we're um, potentially injur- injuring ourselves. Somebody takes, commented you know, on YouTube yeah. or on one of the one of my Facebook posts. It was Dusty. It was a Dusty had uh, said something in the show about training to failure. And somebody's comment mm-hmm. was that we nobody trains to failure, that training to failure would be that the muscle tore or was near tearing. What do you think about that? Uh, well, that's probably, that's not true because most people aren't doing sets with maximal loads. I mean, why a muscle tears when it does, like you have all sorts of muscle tears when people are doing just minimal things, odd things, light, really lightweight, or like guys, like they, they step down a, um, uh, they take a wrong step walking down a ramp or getting out of their truck or whatever, and they tear a muscle. 
And that could potentially be because of it's an odd situation and they have a really unusual activation pattern and it creates force inequalities across a muscle that, that leads to a tear in one place and once once it starts to tear, it's kind of like the uh, the yellow pages, the, the strongman trick, you know, getting the yellow pages to tear. And the trick there is, is getting it started. And once it starts to go, it just goes. Okay. So you can have a muscle tear with a very light load. I'm yeah. going somewhere with this. Yeah. But most of the time, if you're doing a you set of do. 10 or 15 rep, what's that? You always do. You said, I'm going somewhere with I this. I always do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Every once in a while, I lose my way, but usually I come back. <laughs> But if you get to the end of your set and you're using 75% of your one rep max, you're, it's not like the forces are higher than the muscle could possibly tolerate. Yeah. Because you just, you just did those, you did 12 reps before the 13th one when you're incapable of, of producing another rep. Now, a muscle tear would also be one potential cause of muscle failure. It would fail. Right? Yeah, like yeah. the muscle, literally, like that's a complete mechanical failure of the muscle. Like there's no muscle left that's connected from tendon to tendon because you tore the thing. Yes. But, um, yeah, there, it, it depends on the exercise too. Here's the thing. Um, let's just make this sciencey maybe in a way that other people, cause you know, dusty, I think I saw dusty's answer to it, you know, and it's great. I don't even think dusty saw it. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, dusty's like when he addressed it though, on the podcast. Oh yeah. Talking yeah. About, about like going to failure. Training, yeah. Yeah, ten years ago or twenty years ago, he couldn't do what he now can do. Yeah, you yeah. learn. Yeah, you learn what you're capable of. You know, by training with people who train harder than you, or just having those crazy training sessions. You just your bar incrementally goes up and up and up. Mm-hmm. And what seems like at some point, like oh, that was just kind of oh, the so-so training session. Fifteen or twenty years would be like, holy fuck, I killed it, baby! Like that was amazing. Yeah, but relative to where you've been. Um, but the, here's the interesting thing. There's a way that they've assessed like motor unit activation. So if if someone were at true muscular failure, what you would expect from a neurological standpoint is that they are fully maximally activating all of the potential motor units that are available. So motor units, the nerve and the fibers that are connected to it. So they're like there's nothing left. It's like if you end your set and you're not like really at 100% activation, then you got more reps in reserve. You got more reps in the tank. So they can test this. Uh, um, various ways, but it's basically the same same um, methodology. They can activate the nerve or they can activate the muscle with electrical stimulation. So usually like a knee extension is the easiest one to kind of describe. That's how it's usually done. So you put someone on a knee extension machine and you, you turn up, you put pads on their quad to activate a good volume of the quad and you figure out how much juice you got to give in order to turn on and get like 25% of um, the muscle force that they can produce voluntarily, right? So you, let's say they can produce 1,000 newtons, newtons of force on a, on a dynamometer, and you get up to 250 on that. So that's activating, let's say, roughly 25% of the muscle mass. So then you say, okay, now I want you, the test subject, to push as hard as you can and then you turn on the juice. And if they're already activating those motor units, um, then when you turn on the juice, you'll get no more force production. Hmm. Yeah. They've already activated them. Yeah. Well, what happens What happens with people, and this is the problem with the phenomenon, here's a, problem, a couple problems with this, with this um, way of doing things, is that 
and I, when I we did this in when I back when I was in grad school, and you see this in in the, some of the studies, you turn on the juice, and the electrical current or the depolarization wave it goes both ways. Okay. It goes down to the fibers and would turn them on if they're not already on. It also goes back up. It goes back up in the direction of where the signal's coming down from your brain. So it's hmm. like two waves colliding, and what do you get? They cancel one another. No kidding. So the force goes down. Huh. So I'm pushing a thousand newtons, newtons, and or you know whatever newton meters, and the force actually will go down because you're colliding with the with the um, the, the the waves coming down from the from the brain with these they're called antidromic waves. Hmm. So you, you cancel one another, your force goes down. So it's like, oh, okay. Well, what does that mean? Like I was activating 120 percent of the motor units that were available there. Yeah. It, 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 it means that the method can't be used to test this, but they still do it. It's been done. I don't know how much it's done. I haven't read a study for a long while. It did, but for years and years, they would do this motor unit activation, um, et cetera, et cetera. And they do studies, for instance, with there's a study with older folks where they use the same testing methodology. These were like 65 year old people who were totally untrained. Um, and they, their claim was that they were able to fully activate the quads. Okay. It's like, well, we know you take an untrained person, regardless of how old they are, they get strong really fast. Yeah. You take an untrained older person, first time you bring them in, and they get they they get strong even faster in many cases. Really? Okay. There have been studies with 90-year-olds, yeah, who like – there's a, 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 a kind of a classic study by Maria Friatteroni from like, the, like 1989 or 92 or something – and they took they increased their strength by like two hundred percent. No kidding! Wow. Over the course of like yeah, just doing knee extensions. Huh. So because you're untrained, like you have you're untrained and, and you've also got sort of disuse. You just you don't know what you're doing. You haven't you haven't done anything of you know relatively high exertion for a long time. Yeah. So you really can't tell. But we know we know that if um, you know if you take most people and they're still making neurological gains then there's something going on. It's not just whether the motor units are on or off. There's something about the coordination there, the rate coding it's called, hmm. of the firing rate and the way in which the motor units are activated in order to produce more force that is contributing to their force production. So if you're continually making gains, there's something that's that's missing there. You're not, you've not got full activation. But I think most, most people who train really, really – I mean, if – most people don't. I, I go into most gyms. I don't. I hardly ever see anyone who I look at and I say, "I can't remember the last time I did." I was like, well, "I want to train with that person." Hmm. There's people you don't see people like going after it. Not very. It depends on the gym you go to, of course. Yeah. But it's very rare because it's a really um, kind of a bizarre and not. Hmm. It's only socially acceptable in, in gyms, in certain gyms especially, yeah, to train that hard. Gyms. Yeah. You know. Um. People just don't don't they don't want to do it because it friggin' hurts, and you have to be a little little bit you got to have some loose screws bouncing around up top to do that. So in the best way, so yeah, yeah. So but failure here's the thing to relativize this failure um, is failure for that person. Hmm. You know that's when when their system failed, and under those circumstances. Yeah. Now you can you can invalidate the psychometric of reps in reserve as um, uh, a stable, reliable psychometric measurement because what you can do then is bring someone you know bring bring in the researchers 
or bring in the big guys or bring in a trainer or, you know, have them train with someone like where they want, like, like holy shit, like, this can be great for a guy who trains with a woman who's got better endurance and recovery. Like he's not going to let her beat her. Beat yeah. Him. Yeah. 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 So, so, you know, so, so he's, he's, he's got to hold on to his balls during this. He's got to train hard. He's got to, he's got to hang in there. Or you've got a, re- a researcher who says, okay, give me three more. Mm-hmm. Or you've got Tom Platts who says, give me five more, like we mm-hmm. talked about before. Yeah. So so that relative failure, you know, it's it's a function of the circumstances and the individual and what have you. Um, and it's a function of what your willingness is. In most, in most cases, in many cases, what you're willing to actually put yourself through. Hmm. Um, but you can – but you can – but you can standardize that in the research setting when they're talking about muscle failure by using a tempo and forcing the individual to maintain the tempo. Um, this is why I kind of do this in, in, um, in fortitude training in part with this whole, there's kind of story, but compare a widow maker with the pump set pump sets, the reps are continuous. Mm-hmm. I only, I limit intentionally how much you can just dig in and do those grinding reps because mm-hmm. that can create, then it becomes a, with an advanced person, a test of their willpower, and they'll eat up their recovery reserves doing that. Yeah, because um, they can get five, ten more reps just by like like when you first time you did a a muscle round with yeah. that with that standing squat, and you just were like like you were taking a break between every rep because you just wanted to go as heavy as you could, you know. And I did the same thing first time I did Leo Costa's Titan training with mm. with his muscle rounds. I did it was crazy what I what I did, you know. But I just wanted to train as hard as possible. So in a research setting, you can say this is a tempo you need to maintain. If they're unable to maintain the tempo, then they reach failure. So that's the w- work output or the power output or the, the constraints of the, of the workload that, that is part of the, the training protocol. So you can reach failure where – and sometimes it's kind of like this depending on the muscle and its fatigue. You train a small muscle that for whatever reason you don't have great fatigue resistance in. Yeah. Like this is one arm biceps and like you go and you go and you're like trying to stay on the tempo and it's like, okay, I, I, I couldn't tell you the tempo. So the set's over. Yeah. That's failure. Yeah. That's how it's defined in that situation. But like, it was just one biceps. That was nothing. Like, like it was, it didn't like, it didn't, I'm not like on the ground thinking, oh my God, like I've gone to hell and back. Right. It was just a unilateral biceps girl, but you reached failure. Yeah. You do that. Now take a squat widow maker where it's like, no, I want to see like, like ultimate failure, you know, or whatever it is, where there's not a rep left in your system, no matter if you got a gun to your head or your family's life is at stake, or you're going to win a million dollars or whatever it might be. There's no way you're getting another rep. It's just an absolute impossibility. Well, that's failure under those circumstances where you allow rest in between the reps and what have you. Mm-hmm. So you have to control for those things in training studies because otherwise. You, you, this disparity between people's willingness to go to extraordinary uh, extent to just fucking decimate the muscle and they like to train hard will create a huge gap in what the actual training stimulus is. Hmm. You have one person who just go, go, goes like, okay, that hurts. I'm done. It's like yeah, the ref's didn't even slow down. Lyle McDonald's got some hilarious videos when he and Mike Isertil were going back and forth. People probably remember this a couple of years ago and talking about like what, what happens when you maintain – a rep tempo like that is you see a reduction in the bar speed yeah. or the tempo and you can see like the reps, you know, like the last rep is maybe four seconds when previously it was one and a half or two mm-hmm. on the concept. It's like, okay, that makes, and once you get to like four, like one, two, three, four, and you come back down again, it's like, 
that next one's probably not going up unless you stop put yeah. the bar down or whatever. Yeah. So like Lyle does like an analysis of of that, and he actually you know um, times the reps to show, and that's that's another you know nice metric to show that you've evoked a certain um, requisite amount of fatigue that would that you could equate to reaching failure, so to speak, or you could use as a a way of of standardizing the stimulus of the set based on the constraints of the rep tempo and things that you've set in there. Because if you just let people do willy-nilly Widowmakers, some people are like, like that story I told about the guy I trained with, like I did my Widowmaker and he's like, I'm not doing that. We're done. And he never trained (laughs) with me again. (laughs) Which is just like, they'll never do a real Widowmaker because they don't want to do that. And other people are like, you want me to do another one? Mofo. Okay. I'll do that. Like you ain't beat me. No way. No how today. Never. Yeah. And they'll do it. They'll, they'll go to they die, you know? Right. So you got to constrain those things if you want to equate the stimulus and take the, the brain out of the, out of the, the picture to some degree, at least. So right on. All right. Topic though. Listen, let's wrap this thing up. Uh, guys go to uh BYOB. Let me try that again. Go to BYOBB coach. Dot com. You can get Scott's book there, Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach. And uh, check out our great sponsors too, truenutrition.com. Use our code THINK over there. Uh, go to supplementsource.ca if you're in Canada. And for those of you at Patreon that are helping to support the show, thank you guys very much. And if you're interested, every $5 helps. I will have links to that down below. Scott, as always, man, it has been a pleasure. And I'll look forward to, uh, to hearing more about tamoxifen as that unfolds. Yeah, yeah, we'll do, man.